to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 21st, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. In today's text, St. Paul addresses a report that he has received concerning a case of sexual immorality within the Corinthian church. He tells the saints there how they must exercise church discipline, both for the sake of the individual and for the sake of the congregation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be on as always. Pastor Heidi, we're talking about 1 Corinthians today, particularly chapter 5. What should we know about this epistle as a whole and the context leading up to chapter 5? Well, 1 Corinthians as a whole is a letter addressing a congregation which is dealing with a lot of problems. Um, Paul had spent a lot of time in Corinth uh, setting up this congregation, but he finds out basically after he leaves of some troubles some troubles that are going on there, and so he is trying to address those problems and to show them the, the truth, to lead them in the way that they, they should be going. And as for this particular chapter, even though Paul has talked about some of the issues coming up to this point, especially divisions within the church, uh, this is probably the first, I almost want to say a very concrete example of this kind of division you know, that's going on and the problems within Corinth. So he's he's going to address this issue starting in chapter 5, and I think it continues on basically down through, like, what, chapter 7 or so? Yeah, I think, I, th- I mean, chapter 6, I think, is very much related when, as we'll talk about with the matter of judgment that comes up in this chapter, as it continues into the matter of lawsuits into chapter 6. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe in chapter 7, he starts addressing things that they had written to him about. It, it seems that chapter 5 comes more from perhaps that report that he got from Chloe's people that he mentioned in mm-hmm. chapter 1, um, or perhaps a different report as well. But it does seem to be, on, on the one hand, chapter 5 starts a, a new section of sorts, mm-hmm. but as I think you were saying, it's related to what's come before. He's been addressing this matter of divisions, especially about which is your favorite preacher, Mm-hmm. And now he's going to deal with divisions that are happening because of sin within the congregation. Help us to help us to connect those two things, because while it is, a, I think, a, a new section of sorts, I don't think the two matters are unrelated. Well, I mean, it's it focuses around that division, right? Because the division arising because of my favorite preacher really kind of focused on their idea of wisdom, which is also something Paul that talks talks about quite a bit in First Corinthians. Uh, their idea that they are spiritual, that they are somehow enlightened in their understanding, and that's actually going to influence how they approach this sin, which leads them into further division. So their own their own view of themselves and what they're doing and how they think of themselves is leading them into further problems, 
which is why all of this is kind of tied together. Talk a little bit about just the approach that Paul takes then in this epistle as a whole. But what I mean is this, when I think about my pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. what Paul talks about in chapter 5 is obviously a very serious problem, as we will see. Mm-hmm. And I think, and again, it's hard to put myself entirely in those shoes, but that would be a matter that I would want to address right away. Paul spent four chapters addressing the matter of divisions before he addresses that. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that he's setting a theological foundation for what he's talking about here. I, do you have any thoughts on on just—and I know that's a hard question to answer because we don't know precisely why he arranges things the way he does all the time, but do you see anything there in terms of the arrangement and that, that approach that he takes? Well, I think his arrangement is to take all of these things in their general problem, which again is that idea of their their view of themselves, their misunderstanding of who they are as Christians. And then he kind of uses that approach as, and then kind of breaks it down into the individual instances of this and kind of tying it all together before he will finally come back at the end and say, this is really what you should be doing. This is what it really means to be a Christian. This is what it really means to live as one especially towards uh, when he gets to talking about being one body with many members, that sort of thing. You know, these divisions can't exist because you are one body in Christ. Yeah, yeah, and I think that being one body in Christ, united in his name, that was something that he emphasized very strongly in chapter 1. The name of Jesus came up over and over again, and we're going to see that in this chapter and again in chapter 6 for sure, and going forward in other places as well, to be united together under Christ, that's the foundation that has to be in place so that when he says what he says in this chapter and the ones that follow about what they need to be doing, it's not simply a matter of fixing my behavior so that I make myself righteous, but rather this is what the Christian life looks like for those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ. Yeah. So that once I'm united in Christ, all of these other things will be resolved, sort of thing. Um, Having the identity first, and yeah, we kind of have to work through that, we kind of have to think about what that means, but it's going to ultimately change everything rather than starting from the outside working in. Right, right. But then once you have started where you start, the change in behavior does need to happen. Paul's right. not going to let the church get away with just continuing to live however they want to, and as we'll see in this chapter, to be proud of it. He's going right. to call them to this real repentance that bears fruit within the life of the Christian church. Well, I mean, this is Jesus's point, right? That you will know them by their fruits. It is ultimately faith. Faith produces fruits, yes. Faith comes first, fruits come second, but the fruits will always come. And that includes the way that we live, the way that we behave, all of those things. That's right. That's right. So with that foundation in place, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
and my spirit is present. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Heidi, Paul brings up a report that he's received concerning the Corinthians. Do you think, is this from Chloe's people, as we heard back in chapter 1? Is this a separate report? Any? Do we know? I, I don't think it makes a difference either way, honestly, because it's, it's a doozy of a report. It's a doozy of a report. That's putting it mildly. What, what's the report? What's going on, Pastor Heidi? Uh, the report is is not only is there sexual immorality happening in the church, it's the kind of sexual immorality that makes even the pagans blush. Which, if you know anything about the ancient world, is pretty impressive. Uh, because they were not known for being prudes by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, if, if this is something that the pagans consider to be evil... It is truly and truly indeed evil, and yet they're treating it as if it is nothing. And this, and the evil that is written, reported, is that this man, this Christian man within their congregation, one who claims to be Christian at least, uh, has engaged in, I mean, sexual immorality with uh, his father's wife, which in this case would most likely be his uh, stepmother. Okay, right. So, and that I, I appreciate you clarifying that because the the way that Paul words it, mm-hmm. there's a number of ways I suppose of hearing that, but that seems the most likely reason for the wording. He is engaging in adultery with his stepmother, mm-hmm. and this is something, as you said, not only in the ancient world, but particularly in the context of Corinth. Mm-hmm. Corinth was known for its sexual immorality, and mm-hmm. so. If the church is doing something that the Corinthians would blush at, this is really bad. Really bad. And I think it's it's important to say that it, it it's most likely his stepmother, because if you compare this with like the similar prohibitions within the Old Testament, like the book of Leviticus and stuff like that, um, they will say father's wife for this case, but they would also say in a different place, mother. So it's two different terms. So it's most likely just the woman who happens to be married to your father, whether he's still alive, whether he's dead, it's not really made clear. Um, but in this case, she is you know, engaged in this immorality with her stepson. Okay. So whether or not the father is alive or not is not really part of the point either way. This isn't Correct. good, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would probably be worse if he was still alive, but it's not good even if he's dead. Right. right. So. Right. And maybe, the I don't know if the fact that he, when, when Paul says this is something that the pagans can't even stand, mm-hmm. if that points to him perhaps being alive as opposed to being dead, because that just seems that much worse. But like you said, mm-hmm. either way, this is something that should not be happening. And Paul says, this is what I'm hearing. This is what's being reported. And not only that, so it's not only that it's happening, but they're proud of it. So take right. us into verse two. Right. They're proud of it very likely because of what I was talking about a little bit earlier with their view of themselves, you know, being very spiritual kind of people, being very understanding. They believe that they are very advanced in their Christian faith. And so they think that it's a matter of pride to simply tolerate these things because, you know, we might put it in the sense of, well, it ultimately doesn't matter what you do. You can still be a Christian, you know, that, that kind of thinking or this idea that, you know, we're a spiritual, we're above these things. What we do in the body really doesn't matter. So it's okay if he's doing this. And in fact, they think that it's so, you know, that it's so okay that they're actually proud about it because it shows how good they are too. So by tolerating this, it not only says that, okay, this is what's happening and it's okay, but that also is kind of like a, we'd probably put it in terms of like a virtue signal to show just how good I am too. So the report that Paul got, it's not like this was a hidden thing that he found out by accident. This is something right. that they're not afraid if Paul knows it. They don't think it's a big deal if Paul knows it. They think it's part of a boast that they could have as the church, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, being arrogant about it, and they think that you know this is something that should be celebrated. This is something that can continue. It's okay that he's doing this. I mean, there's. it's not just the sexual immorality itself, which is terrible in itself, but it's the pride that goes along with it that causes us to be an even bigger sin than just yeah. the sexual immorality. Right, right. So is this, I mean, is this along the lines of, say, the way Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Is it... Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of attitude that seems to be behind the Corinthians here? Is it something bigger than that or related to that? Well, I think that's certainly related if it's not behind it. Um, it, it really is this idea that what I do in the body doesn't really make a difference. That it's okay if I engage in this because it's just the body. It's just physical. It's going to pass away anyway. And we're going to be in heaven someday, so we don't really need to worry about it, right? And this idea that because I don't have to worry about my body or what I do in the body, therefore I can show just how spiritual I am, how heavenly-minded I am, by showing just how much I don't care about what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's the attitude that Paul will explicitly speak about toward the end of chapter 6, that attitude that what I do in the body, and he's going to attach it specifically to the matter of sexual immorality again in chapter 6, that becomes explicit. The thought that you're talking about seems to be behind what's happening here in chapter 5. So they're arrogant in the Corinthian church about this. Paul says they should have a different reaction. What Talk about the reaction Paul says they should have to what's going on with this gentleman. Well, they should mourn that this is happening among them. This should not be a point of pride. That would be a terrific first step. 
But the ultimate step that needs to be taken is a removal. Uh, this man must be removed from the congregation for the good of the whole body, which he's going to go on to explain, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, so, and I think that's, that's important, at least for the outset, to see the two reactions when there is sin, whether in my own life, and especially in the life of the congregation, the first reaction to that sin is mourning. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose if, if I'm the one that's caught up in the sin, and that's the reaction that I have, is a reaction of mourning when someone points it out to me, then the, the second step of being removed from the church probably doesn't need to happen, because I'm going to be right. drawn into repentance instead. But where that repentance doesn't happen, and there's no mourning over the sin, then the eventual next step is this removal that Paul's talking about. Correct. And in the yeah. case of this man, um, the fact that he has persisted in this openly, he's been encouraged in this, he, he probably has no intentions of stopping it. That in itself is something that needs to be addressed very sternly with yeah. this removal from the congregation. Right. If, if he had slipped up and done something stupid and said, I messed up, please forgive me, and I'm going to try not to do it again. Again, that would be something very different. But the fact that he is, you know, probably living with this woman, he's openly engaging in this sexual immorality with this woman. She's basically being treated as his wife. Yeah. And though she is not. Though she is not. Yeah. And that in itself shows just how severe this situation is. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and not only then is he not mourning over what he's doing, but neither is the church mourning over what he's doing. They, it doesn't seem that they have tried to call him out at all at this point. They're boasting right along with him, mm-hmm. and I think there's there's something to that. the The thought that Paul says to to mourn over what is happening among them, in conjunction with the removal. I think having those things side by side helps us to see, and, and we'll see more as we go on in the text, but I think just having those two things side by side helps us to see the attitude in which these actions are taken. Mm-hmm. This is not taken in some sort of lighthearted way. It's not taken in a mean-spirited way, but it is taken out of a, a matter of, it's just, this is love for this guy and for the whole congregation. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also mourning because the fact that a member has to be cut off like this yeah. should never be a cause for celebration. Absolutely. You know, we yeah. should mourn it. We should not take it lightly, as you said. But if the step has to be taken, then it must be taken. I mean, you can liken it to um, maybe, like, let's say an amputation, right? right? Nobody wants to have a limb amputated, but sometimes it has to happen. Yeah. Or you're yeah. going to die. Right, right. And you mourn. And you mourn about it. No doubt. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and we'll see this too, I think it's important to say from this text that the purposes for this removal, there's really two of them. One is for the sake of the individual, Mm -hmm. and one is for the sake of the congregation as a whole. Correct. There's there's something that Paul wants for this, this man that allowing him to live in his sin won't give him. And the only thing, the way that he he will receive this gift is if he's actually cut off, which maybe seems counterintuitive to us in the wisdom of the world, uh, but the wisdom of God that Paul's been talking about has something better for this guy. And so I think we're going to see both of those things as this text text progresses, 
that there's a purpose both for the individual and for the congregation. Right. And to put it, I mean, to put it in our terms, of course, we are talking about excommunication, uh, which is sometimes used in the church even today. Sometimes right. it needs to be used, but it should always be done, like you say, in that spirit of mourning and for very clear and serious reasons. So, yep. All right, so let's talk about then Paul's uh, procedure, the way that he says this is going to happen here, starting in verse 3. He talks about the fact that he's not present in the body, he's absent in the body, but he's present in spirit, and in that then he, in, he commands the congregation, you assemble in the name of Jesus and do something. So talk about the, the process, maybe take us into this language of absent in body, present in spirit, and what we should sure. understand by that. Well, Paul, I forget where he's writing Corinthians from. Did you guys talk I think about that? Eph Ephesus is where he's likely writing this from. Okay, so he's across the water, basically. Um, yeah, so he's he's not anywhere really near Corinth. He's not going to be able to get there anytime soon. In fact, I'm not sure he's going to get there anytime soon at all, if I remember correctly. But his point is, is he doesn't have to be physically there uh, because he is spirit. He's present in spirit. Partly because he is their spiritual father, he spent a lot of time in Corinth, you know, teaching them, you know, leading them through these things, but also because he's present as part of, you know, the whole church, the, you know, united together in the Holy Spirit, I would argue, that because we, they are the church together, they are able to do these things um, as, as Christ had commanded them to do. I mean, you think of what Jesus says in Matthew, or in the Gospels, for example, whatever you bind in on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So you have an expression here of the keys, which are given to the church to bind sins and also to forgive sins. So when the congregation comes together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that power given by Christ, uh, they are to exercise, in this case, the binding key. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So Matthew 18 is the as a particular place you know, where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. He promises to be present for the the purposes of the keys being exercised, and this, as you said, is the binding key, the one that's going to lock heaven to the unrepentant, and that's done in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's that use of that phrase that Paul has mentioned several times in the context of this letter particularly in chapter 1, when he called them to be united in the same mind and same judgment. Mm -hmm. it, it does seem that he was preparing the stage for what he's writing here with those words. It, you need to be together on this. You need to be speaking to this man with one voice mm -hmm. in the name of Jesus so that he hears you loud and clear what he needs to hear, this call to repentance. And if we also take Matthew 18, which I'm sure Paul would have certainly in mind here, this is not just a, oh, we're just going to dump this on this guy without any prior warning, you know, because that would not be what Christ intends either. This would be a case of if you tell it to your brother, he refuses to listen. If you do, if two or three tell him and he refuses to listen, and now they've come to the point where the whole congregation needs to tell him. And if he refuses to listen, then now his, the, the binding key is used. So it is, it's, again, it's not something we want to think of like instantaneous, like we're using it vindictively or that we're using it in a political way or anything like that. This is the, the last step, as it were, the final step, the most drastic step 
that needs to be taken in calling someone to repentance. Yeah, and I th- not to go too far ahead in the text, but part of the calling this man to repentance, Paul has accomplished in the letter that he wrote previously, in mm-hmm. verse 9 of this chapter is where we find out that this is not actually the first letter that Paul has right. written, to, written to the Corinthians. We, we've mentioned that previously, that there's some correspondence that was given between the Paul and his, his church here in Corinth that we don't have, and it's mentioned there. Right. But for the, the purposes of this section, I think it's important to notice that the letter writing that Paul does serves as part of that call to rebuke that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's Paul going to this man ahead of time, at least you know through his his letter to call him to repentance to the point that we've we've reached this step now where it's going right. to be the whole church coming together. Right, and it has to be done because if it isn't done, and I, this is something we can talk about a little bit too, and that's also kind of the point of that last paragraph, which we'll get to. If it isn't done, then the whole congregation is going to be cut off in that sense. Yeah. Not by themselves, but by the Lord. Yeah. 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 Again, so we're going to see in this text a purpose both for the man and a purpose for the congregation. And Paul, though he is not present with them physically, through his pastoral ministry that he did exercise when he was present physically, through the pastoral ministry that he is now exercising through the correspondence, mm-hmm. all under the name of Jesus in his word, he has this judgment to be pronounced, and he commands the congregation to come together and pronounce that in the name of Jesus. They're going to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the purpose of saving his spirit on the day of the Lord. And that's where we're going to see the individual purpose for excommunication for the one who's caught up in this sin— That's where we'll pick up our conversation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Zelwyn Heidi this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 21st. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we had made it to the point where Paul says to the Corinthian church that they need to deliver this man over to Satan, and he gives them the purpose for this man. The purpose is that his flesh would be destroyed, it's for the destruction of his flesh, but it's also 
so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Talk to us about what Paul intends here. So the ultimate intention, maybe just in the broad overview kind of look, is by removing this man from the congregation, by separating him from the body, the ultimate point is that he would come to realize what has happened and therefore repent and actually come back and be saved, right? That's the, ulti- that's the ultimate goal, that's the ultimate hope in this process, that by this shock, as it were, by this jolt that they're giving to him, it should shake him out of his complacency to realize that, oh, this situation's actually pretty bad. I need to, I need to change what I'm doing. Because if the congregation says you can no longer be a part of the congregation, you can't even really call yourself a Christian. And I'm sure that name meant a very a great deal to him if he's boasting about doing all these things. You know, you this would ideally, and we pray for this, that it would wake him up so that he would come back and be saved. Yeah. So the the thought then is that excommunication, just to use that term that we are familiar with. Mm-hmm. The purpose is to show the person just how serious their unrepentant sin actually is. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that you can continue to live in and claim the name Christian. If you want to let sin rule over you, and you want to live in according to your flesh, according to your sinful flesh, then you're not in Christ anymore, and you're dead. I mean, that's that's you you. There is no hope for eternal life for you if that is the path that you are choosing. Right. And excommunication is meant to put that plainly in front of the person for the purpose of waking them up, so that God would raise them from the dead in Christ back into this life mm-hmm. that is not just something that is now, but something that goes all the way to the day of the Lord, as Paul says here in this verse. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the the and again, you want to shock them into seeing it so that they recognize what is happening because you're basically saying if you keep going down this way you're going to hell i mean you have to put it in that stark of terms this is not a way you can go and still be a christian yeah that's right and and, we, we use the language of shocking the person because that's the effect that hopefully it has Mm -hmm. but it's not said to shock ultimately Mm-hmm. It's said because it's true. I mean, this is, you right. talked about the use of the keys. That's what the keys say. If you are unrepentant, heaven is locked to you, which, yes, sounds shocking, and perhaps especially in our day and age when everyone thinks that everyone is saved. Right. But it's not just meant, it's not said for shock factor. It's said because it's true. And through that word, then the Lord does work to bring to repentance. But that's, yeah, we talk about shock, but it's that's really not the point. It, it's right. said because it's true. Right, right. No, I mean, absolutely. When I say shock, I mean, that's sure. that's what we hope the truth will do, is to wake them up kind of a thing. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. We're, we're declaring in that moment that this is the reality, and you're just proclaiming, you're preaching it in that very direct, very straightforward kind of way. That's right. That's right. So for all of the the churches, and it's not wrong by any means for us to try to be winsome mm-hmm. when we speak to people about Christ and the hope that we have of eternal life, and and winsome even and when we talk about the effects of our sin. To there there are times and places where perhaps we are not as direct, 
But then there's plenty of times and places where we need to be direct. And this is certainly one of them where there's no dancing around what's going on here. Hand him over to Satan. Tell him where he where he is right now, because that's what he needs to know. Right, right. I suppose you want to talk about that language of Satan there, too. <laughs> Have at it, Pastor Heidi. Tell us what that means. Oh, yeah. If I if I had to take my stab at it, because I suppose we can debate about it, I think what Paul means here is that you're handing him over to the world. Because if Satan is understood as the prince of the powers of the air, he's called the, the ruler of this age in different places, uh, the, the unbelieving world in some sense, I'm not going to say in absolute sense, but in some sense, is under his domain, right? And when we therefore remove from the congregation, it's like we're sending someone back to his domain, sending someone back to his kingdom, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that makes sense. And the, the passage that I would use in conjunction with that is in Colossians 1, where Paul says in verses 13 and 14, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the language of, you know, the domain of darkness or the domain of Satan. God has delivered us out of that. And so Paul says, you need to tell this person, you've walked back into Satan's territory. That's that's where you are. I, th- right. I think that makes sense. Sure. I, th- I And I think that probably makes the raises the fewest questions about what exactly Paul means here. So that's the yeah. one that I would go with. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. No no debate needed, Pastor Heidi. Let's move on. Fair enough. So your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleans out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened? So now we've talked about the purpose of excommunication for the individual who's caught up in this sin. Mm-hmm. Now Paul's going to talk about the purpose for the congregation as a whole and he uses the image of leaven. Mm-hmm. What's Paul saying here? Well, Paul is basically saying that if you allow this to persist, it's not only going to be bad for him, it's going to be bad for you. Um, the, the, the image of leaven here or of yeast is the idea that if I have a little bit of yeast in my, you know, my dough sort of thing, even though it's a very small amount of yeast, it affects the whole thing, right? Because if I have no yeast, then the, the bread stays flat. But even if I put a little bit in, it, it can expand a great deal. I mean, if any of you, you know, if you made bread at home, you know exactly what this is like. Uh, it doesn't take much, like not even basically a little over a teaspoon of yeast in order to make an entire loaf. Are so, you a baker, Pastor Heidi? We do bake bread around here. So <laughs> not sourdough, which is what this would have been, but still. Right. That's right. No, you're right. It doesn't take much leaven at all, especially when you're thinking about commercial yeast, as, as many would use today. But even in, in Paul's day, it doesn't take much with enough time, it's going to grow, and it's going to leaven the whole lump. Right. And Paul says this kind of leavening is not the kind of leavening that you want, and it's not the leaven that you are, in fact. So we come right. back to that reality of the identity here. Uh, keep taking us into this, this image that Paul's, use, Paul's using. Well, and I think it's also important here to connect. We should make this explicit. Paul is explicitly connecting this to the exodus, 
uh, because you have here the the Passover. In fact, he explicitly says Christ, our Passover lamb. And if you remember back in the book of Exodus, Israel was commanded, get rid of all of your yeast, right? Clean it all out, and then you have to start over. Not only at Passover the first time, but it was supposed to be a yearly thing. The idea was, is that through this symbol, you're removing that which is evil among you. You're not allowing it to continue. You're starting over, so to speak. But this is who you are. You are the new leaven. You are part of the new loaf. You are not bringing the old yeast, you know, the old chunk of dough in good sourdough style, forward to your new loaf. You're cutting it off. You're getting rid of it. You're starting over. And that's what you need to be doing right now. Yeah. Okay. So, and I... I know that he, I, I hesitate to accuse him of switching metaphors, but he doesn't call Christ the unleavened bread. He calls Christ the Passover lamb. I don't, he, but that's okay. He can do that. He's Paul. And he can do what he wants. That's right. That's right. And that is who Jesus is. Right. So, I mean, take us explicitly then into how that, because that does seem to be the central thing that Paul wants them to hear, right. is that Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that's what's cut off the old leaven mm-hmm. and now made you into this unleavened loaf, as, as he'll say toward the end of this section. So, again, make the connection to Christ very explicit. Well, I mean, it's, it's that same connection in the Passover, right? You have the Passover lamb being sacrificed, the blood being spread across the door. And because of that, the angel of death passes over so that the house is no longer destroyed. At the same time, they are cutting off everything that was old, because where would their yeast at the first Passover, Passover have come from but from Egypt, yeah. right? It's, and so they're saying, make a clean break. Nothing about what you had before is going to be allowed to continue. And it is only because of who you are in Christ and because he has been sacrificed for us that we have that new beginning. And therefore, we are truly unleavened in the sense that all of the old has been purged away. It's all gone because the Lamb has shed his blood. He has yeah. made us new by the cross. That's right. That's right. So here, here Paul, I think, is, is echoing our friend John the Baptizer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. So it is in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that your sins have been taken away, that old leaven of malice and evil, he says, in Christ, that's been taken away. That's not in your congregation anymore. It's gone. In Christ, you are cleansed. You are now of the sincerity and truth. Those old things have been taken away. Behold the new new creation language, 2 Corinthians. I'll hold on to that one for when we get to 2 Corinthians. (laughs) The old has passed away, the new has come. And that's all true. That's absolutely all true. But Paul is also saying here, therefore, don't bring back the old yeast. Yeah. (laughs) You are new in Christ. You have been set free. You are cleansed. You've been cut off from the old. So why are you trying to bring the old back? That's right. And that's the the, the issue here in Corinth. They're trying to bring in that old yeast again. And if they do it, the whole lump is going to be leavened. And it'll be all cast out then. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why they need to, to cut it off so that it doesn't infect the whole lump. Yeah. 
Yeah. Talk, talk just a little bit about the, the practicality of what Paul is saying here and the way that, that sin leavens mm-hmm. a, a congregation. I mean, at least in my own mind, what I think about is that you know, someone, someone is witnessing this man living in this sexual immorality, mm-hmm. and there are no consequences whatsoever. They are then emboldened to do the same or worse. Is there? I mean, that seems mm-hmm. to be part of it. Talk about the, the leavening effect of sin. Well, imitation, like you say, is an obvious one, right? Uh, especially among younger Christians who might see this and say, oh, I guess that's okay. I don't need to, to worry about it. I can do this uh, because this person's a Christian. They're doing it, so I can do it too. That would be one way in which um, it, sin would leaven the whole lump. Um, but especially in terms of the Corinthians, I think it also comes in from just seeing these things and thinking that it's okay to tolerate them. That by, by allowing these things to continue in their midst, by not addressing it as sin, by even being proud about it the way that the Corinthians were, they're basically saying it isn't a sin. And if you say that it isn't a sin, you're making God into a liar. I mean, I have to be as forward about that because that's what's happening here. If we say it is not a sin, we have made him a liar and the truth is not in us. To kind of yeah, I, I, paraphrase but, John there. Well, that's right. I, I'm glad you went to First John because that's that's where I was thinking too, especially with the way that Paul speaks about what the old leaven is being malice and evil, mm-hmm. and that now you are the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Those things don't mean that Christians never sin. Right. Christians do sin. But when they sin, they confess those sins so that God, in his faithfulness and justice, would forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. If we don't confess the sin, that's when the leaven starts to grow. Right, right. If you want to use your bread metaphor again... (laughs) uh, Paul's the one that did it, Paul's the one that did it. Come on. But, I mean, with with sourdough, right? Because what is sourdough? Sourdough is bread that has... become bread because of the yeast in the air, right? It's stuff that's always coming in. And the longer that a sourdough starter goes on, you know, the the more, the richer it becomes, the more yeasty it becomes with all these wild strains. Well, that's kind of what's happening with us as Christians too. You know, we have been cleansed, we have been set free, but there's always that sin kind of lingering around in the air. And it's always threatening to infect us again, which is why we need to be constantly cleansed of that sin so that we are, you know, continue to be a new creation in Christ. That's right. That's right. So get rid of the leaven, Paul says, because you need to do it for the sake of you as a congregation. Yes. Now then Paul, Paul in verse 9 then tells them, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You don't happen to have a copy of that letter, do you, Pastor Heidi? I wish I did. Man, I know it, right? <laughs> So here, here again, just as, as something that we've mentioned previously, this is the, the reference to a previous correspondence that Paul had with the Corinthian church, a letter that we just simply don't have. But he tells us, at least in part, what one thing that's there, and he said, look, I already told you about this. You shouldn't associate with sexually immoral people. But then he's going to clarify for them what that means. Mm-hmm. And it, as he says here, it doesn't mean that you can't associate with sexually immoral people of the world, or those who are unbelievers. Rather, he says, no, I'm specifically talking about those who are sexually immoral and claiming the name brother. Mm -hmm. Take us into this distinction that Paul makes here. Yeah. So the the original command, 
the original thing that Paul wrote in that letter, in the previous letter of however long ago it was, was that we as Christians should not, we should not, I want to say, we should not interact with these sexually immoral people in such a way that treats what they're doing as if it's okay, right? That we have to be clear that what they are doing is wrong and we shouldn't associate them as associate with them as if it wasn't. Now, broadly speaking, you know, that would be a good kind of, you know, guard yourself, watch out for what you're doing in the world, you know, don't be conformed to the, the world's way of thinking. You know, that would be kind of the, the broader kind of perspective here. But now he's talking specifically and saying that this even more direct kind of not associating with them, this like actually separating from them is not something that happens with the world generally, because then you would just be living in isolation. You wouldn't have any connection with anyone. And how would you bring anyone out of Satan's kingdom in that way? Kind of a thing. So you're going to have to associate with the, the pagans of this world one way or another, even though you need to, you know, not participate in their sins, but it becomes a very different matter when someone who claims to be a Christian is living as if they were a pagan. Because now you have something that's not just outside that you can kind of just be on guard against. You have something that has come within, that is now within the congregation, that is now in your midst. And for that reason, it's a much more serious matter. Okay, yeah. So on the, on the one hand, it's not wrong then for the Christian to say, buy his toga there in Corinth from a pagan. He, he can buy his toga from a, from a pagan. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that he needs to engage in the pagan's religious practices. So right. there's, a, there's a balance here that—and and again, to go to, to 1 John, in chapter 2, John says you, you can't love the world and God. So Paul's, Paul's not contradicting that, but he's just acknowledging the reality, hey, not everybody in the world is Christian, and so you're going right. to have to associate with them in some respects. That's, but that's not what I'm talking about in this case. What right. I'm talking about are those who claim to be Christian, who are living in this way, that's who you can't associate with, and in fact can't even eat with them, he says. Mm -hmm. Which is, for the ancient world especially, the highest expression of saying you can't have anything to do with them. That if you're not eating with somebody, if they're not part of your table in that sense, then you have effectively cut them off, right? So what what kind of cutting off do you think Paul has in mind? When he says don't eat with them, is he talking about any meal at all? Is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Is he talking about both things there? Are we Amish? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what, what, is that, what, what does that look like? What does, he, does he mean no, no contact at all? What, I don't... Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and I think, I think in this case, you know, there are cases where we would have to be completely cut off, especially if somebody is not is completely unrepentant, if they show no signs of being repentant, if if they are causing, you know, all kinds of leaven to come into the congregation. I think there are cases where you'd have to say, we can't have any of this kind of a thing that complete separation. I think in other cases, though, you know, we still want to try to call them to repentance. We want to, connect, you know, connect with them. We want to say, hey, you know, repent of what you're doing, come back. 
but we can't act as if there is no problem here. We can't act as if they're just guilty of some minor infraction if this has happened kind of a thing and to treat it as if it was no big deal because then the leaven comes back in. So in the case, perhaps, of someone who's engaged in blatant false teaching Mm -hmm. and wants to spread that false teaching in the congregation to stand up and speak publicly, Mm -hmm. that might be a time in which that person would not only be excommunicated, but told, you cannot come here and teach, and if that's what you're going to do, then you need to to leave and not come back. Right. But in another case, and and I don't have the the words that are used in the case of an excommunication from our agenda right in front of me. But it seems to me that we do acknowledge that the one who has been excommunicated, although he should not receive the Lord's body and blood at the Lord's table so that he doesn't receive it to his condemnation, we do want him to be hearing the Word of God, so that if he's sitting there in the pew during the divine service listening to the sermon, that can be a good thing for him. And in that case, then there's not a total break an association that you never talk to him again or something like that. Well, and that's why churches will sometimes talk about what they call the minor ban, which is kind of what you're talking about. This idea that you can't come to the Lord's table as long as you persist in this. But we call it the minor ban because we're not really fully excommunicating them in the sense of we're not totally cutting them off the way that a full excommunication would do. It's more of a, this is a, almost a preliminary step kind of thing. Sure. A first step yeah. to be taken. What you're doing is wrong. You need to stop. But it's not so blatant at this point that you need to be cut off entirely. Sure. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. But even in the case where there is the full excommunication, then there may be those cases where the association does you still engage with the person you certainly don't stop praying for the person right. that's that's certain and you don't as you have opportunity you may speak god's word and that reminder of hey the reason you're excommunicated is because we want you to repent not because right. we wanted to get rid of you does that make sense it does i mean and that's ultimately we want them that their spirit may be saved as paul said yeah that's right but there may, be, there may be cases where you just have to say, we will pray for you, but until you repent, until you change your ways, you just can't come back. Hmm. And that, I know that sounds cruel, and it sounds cruel to a lot of people, especially in our day and age, but I mean, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. As long as this man is, is sleeping with his stepmother, don't interact with him. Just don't do it. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and again, to go back to what we said at the outset, and he's claiming to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. He cannot do both of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so you by by this lack of association with him, you are giving the public testimony that he refuses to give. He wants to claim to be a Christian, and you are saying you're not a Christian while you're living like this. Yeah. Well, that's actually actually a great point too, because it's not just for the sake of the congregation, it's not just for his sake, but it's also for the sake of the world, right? Because as long as this man continues to claim to be a Christian, as long as he's kind of connected with you in any way, that association is going to constantly be made. See those Christians? Well, they tolerate that terrible thing that we don't even like, 
Yeah. You need to cut yeah. yourself off completely from him. That's right. Now, Pastor Heidi, we've had such a, a lively discussion that <laughs> we're running short on time, and, and we haven't even gotten to the part where Paul says, you need to judge people, which might sound like, wait, that's in the Bible? So Paul says, you need to judge the people inside the church. Yes. You're not judging those outside the church, but you do need to judge the ones inside the church. Yes. What's what's he saying? Um, this is really going to be where chapter 6 will pick up, um, and I think with your next guest, you'll probably have a, a more time to, to go through this. But... This idea that you're judging within the church, he's basically saying you need to be able to recognize these things and to do what is right, to do what is righteous, which you clearly haven't been up to this point, but you need to be able to settle things within your own circles. You need to be able to fix these problems yourselves and not go anywhere else to try to fix them or not just try to ignore them because, as he'll go on to say, you're even going to judge Big cases, bigger ones than this, on the last day. If you can't handle little things like this, what are you going to do on the last day? Kind of a thing. Yeah, right. And so then by the end of the chapter, he makes plain yet again what what his judgment is that he has spoken already. And he, he does so, I, I think, from at least, at least alluding to, if not outright quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. purge the evil person from among you. This is what needs to happen in this case. I've told you why. Make sure you do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Pastor Heidi, with with about a minute here, you know these are these are difficult words, uh, words that are certainly not in line with what our culture is going to say, and words that maybe Christians haven't always read or thought about. Without taking away the seriousness of the warning, mm-hmm. as we wrap up today, again, help us to see the evangelical, the gospel-centered purpose of what Paul has in mind here. About everything in general, or about the last part in particular, the chapter, the last part in general, help us to yeah, help us to wrap things up. Right, but yeah. Well, I mean, yes, this kind of judgment is never easy, and and God does call for us to exercise judgment against the evil within our midst. As Paul says, God will judge those who are outside. He'll take care of the world. We don't need to worry about the world. But we do this because ultimately we judge so that we would be you know, cleansed, so that we would be set free, so that we would not be drawn into sin. Because Christ has set us free from those sins. He has called us to walk in righteousness and in purity. He has brought us out of the world, and therefore we do these things so that we can continue to follow after him. We also do it so that you know the others may see, those who have to be cut off, that they may see that grace and come back to it and be saved. But ultimately, we do it because we are following after Jesus, who has come to set us free from all kinds of leaven and to set us free from all that which would corrupt us. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has taken away our sins. He has taken away the old leaven. Let us therefore leave that old leaven behind of malice and evil and cling to the unleavened bread that Christ has made us to live in sincerity and truth. 
I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.